The happy pair are wed. The Queen is anxious to return to London, and Albert, bless him, puts up with a short honeymoon. I do not think it possible for anyone in the world to be happier or as happy as I am. He is an angel, and his kindness and affection for me is really touching. You see, my darling wife, in no time at all we will play as one, with precision and in perfect harmony. Dearest Albert, my angel. Oh, how the days have flown. Tomorrow I must be the sovereign again. So soon. This must be the shortest honeymoon in history. I did tell you in my letters that affairs of state can stop and wait for nothing. It's just as I recall being told that it is usual in England, is it not, for newly married people to stay up to four to six weeks away from town and society. Mm. And they seem to make a great point of this. Parliament is sitting. And something occurs almost every day for which I am required. And it is quite impossible for me to be absent from London. Ah, but it might perhaps be a good and delicate action not to depart from this custom altogether and to retire from the public eye for at least a fortnight or a week. Two or three days oh. is already a long time to be absent. Really, my dear. So you would abandon your poor, wretched husband? Oh, no. We will go together to Buckingham Palace. You will be pleased, I know. It has been refurbished and will be quite perfect for us. My angel, we will not be parted. Oh. Wherever we are, it will be heaven. It's three months since we were married. February the 10th, 1840 will forever be etched in my memory. My dear wife loves me as much as I love her. I'm quite certain of that. In our home life, where we are uninterrupted by people and affairs of state, we are ecstatically happy and contented. But the difficulty of filling my place with proper dignity is that I am only the husband and not master in the house. Victoria had promised that I would be of assistance to her in her heavy duties, but I find that I am not even allowed to see the contents of the boxes from the various departments of state. I think that completes the business of the day, Lord Melbourne. It is remarkable, ma'am, how well-versed you are on the day-to-day -day running of Parliament. I would venture to say that in some respects it is your finger on the pulse and not mine. Oh, you flatter me, sir. It is only that I am presented with the completed documents and proposals, whereas you are concerned with detail and formulation mm. and argument. Well, no doubt, ma'am, you enlist the help of Prince Albert in dealing with the mountain of papers. Oh, I know that my dear husband would wish to be more involved. Indeed, he thinks I lack confidence in him, for he could certainly help in the trivial matters and in matters concerned with the politics of the country. I think it would be advisable to show him the papers. When we are alone, Lord Melbourne, I prefer talking about other things. <clears throat> Quite. Come in. Oh, uh, Your Majesty, forgive me. I um, I had forgotten that you were... Lord Melbourne and I are nearly at an end. Are those the accounts, Lateson? Yes, ma'am. You will see that every bill is signed by me and verified by Sir Henry Wheatley. Thank you. And uh, does Prince Albert verify the accounts, Baroness? Well, one would not want to concern the Prince about anything so trivial as household expenses. Oh, I think that Lord Melbourne would disagree, judging by his expression. I will leave the two of you to discuss the matter. Good morning, my dear friend. Ma'am. 
Household accounts have always been my responsibility, my lord. One that you take seriously. Indeed I do, as with all the other tasks to which I am entrusted. Your greatest responsibility, of course, was standing between the Princess Victoria and her mother. And in the circumstances, you were justified in doing so. Thank you. However, it would be ill-advised to stand between husband and wife. You do understand, I hope. I share a very personal and long-standing relationship with Her Majesty. All the more reason to stand off, as it were. You see, my dear Baroness, you would only draw down ruin on yourself and entail misery on her you profess to be devoted to. If you would excuse me, Lord Melbourne, I find this conversation both tiresome and unnecessary. Stubborn woman. It is quite remarkable how one's life can change so dramatically for the better. In the space of a few short months, I have managed to please both Parliament and the public. I was cheered in Birmingham, where I gave my first public address as President of the Anti-Slavery Society... Victoria and I were applauded at the opera. Indeed, it now seems the fashion to praise me. A bill has been passed in Parliament which makes me Prince Regent, something my dear wife had wished for and which pleases me more than I can say. But to save the best until last, we will soon be a complete family. Our first baby is expected any day... I believe with all my heart that our marriage will be firmly anchored by this event. Victoria will need my help to fulfill her duties, and the deceitful Leitzen will fade into the background. No! No! Splendid, perfectly splendid, Your Majesty. My angel... We have our first child. Oh, Albert, is it a boy? We, we have a daughter, and she is beautiful. Oh, no. I was certain it would be a boy. Certain. A healthy child, Your Majesty. Take her into the anteroom. She has to be inspected by the cabinet and the bishops. Then, Mom, Mrs. Lily will wrap her in a shawl so that you can hold her. Are you disappointed, my love? Oh, only a very, very little. The country will have wanted an heir. And then the country must wait. Our next child will be a prince. And we will name our first boy after my beloved Uncle Leopold. You have lain on the sofa long enough, my sweet bird. Put your arms around my neck. <sighs> Proper rest will restore your strength. You think the baby's quite pretty, don't you? <laughs> a pussycat. More a frog. Oh. <laughs> that terrible frog-like action. <laughs> All babies move in that way. Then she will grow out of it, I suppose. Our little Victoria Adelaide, Mary Louisa. We should call her Vicky, perhaps, to avoid confusion. <laughs> Shall I wrap your shoulders in a shawl, my love? I have today written this memorandum. It expresses my love and gratitude towards my beloved Albert. November 1840. The prince's care and devotion were quite beyond expression. He refused to go to the play or anywhere else, generally dining alone with the Duchess of Kent. 
he was content to sit by the queen in a darkened room, to read to her or write for her. No one but himself ever lifted her from her bed to the sofa, and he always helped to wheel her on her bed or sofa into the next room. For this purpose, he would come when sent for instantly from any part of the house. His care of her was like that of a mother, nor could there be a kinder, wiser, or more judicious nurse. You may open your eyes. You too, Mr. Hanson. Oh, I've never seen such a beautiful sight. It is quite wonderful. We searched the Great Windsor Park and beyond for the finest tree. It has taken two days to decorate. Candles. Oh, my dear Albert, I have never seen candles in a tree. <laughs> and a star. Oh, Vicky would love this if she were just a little older. But take the baby to the nursery. She must be kept quite warm. Yes, Your Majesty. And you too, my love. You must rest. You promised that you would if we came here for Christmas. See how readily I obey my husband. Won't you come too? I want to supervise the dressing of Holly and Ivy. I want it to be perfect for you. Uh, the largest boughs need to be suspended from the cornices. The ivy in loops, I think. Mr. Anson, what do you think? Magnificent. It is the way we do things in Germany. And my dear wife approves. How could Her Majesty fail to appreciate such beauty? You seem content, Your Royal Highness. Indeed, I am. Yesterday, the Queen gave me the keys to the cabinet boxes. I am at last to be consulted on the affairs of Parliament. It is as it should be. I'm delighted, sir. Nothing but good can come of Her Majesty's action. It shows her complete confidence in your understanding of this country's political and social structure. Lord Melbourne will be pleased. He has wanted this. I do believe it was the Queen's confinement. As you could see, I was eager to help her in any way. It was a gradual letting go, I think. You need to trail the ivy to the upper branches of the tree. It will give it focus. There is still the problem of Baroness Leighton, Your Royal Highness. She has to go. Whilst I was away, I gather she meddled and made mischief whenever she had the opportunity. She complained about me constantly. The Queen is devoted to her, so it is going to be difficult to remove the Baroness. Then we will always be subject to troubled waters. And indeed, as the months pass, the Baroness interferes more and more, to the extent that Victoria and I had our first quarrel and exchange bitter letters. This is most unsatisfactory, as my beloved wife is again pregnant with our second child. To make matters even worse, the government has fallen and Lord Melbourne is no longer Prime Minister. This distresses Victoria, as they had been so close for so many years. As ever, she has welcomed Sir Robert Peel with the warmth and courtesy expected of her. My dear Uncle Leopold, I am going for a drive this morning, and I'm certain it will do me good. In all essentials, I am better, if possible, than last year. Our little boy is a wonderfully strong and large child, with very dark blue eyes, a finely formed but somewhat large nose, and a pretty little mouth. I hope and pray he may be like his dearest papa. He is to be called Albert, and Edward is to be his second name. Pussy, dear child, is still the great pet amongst us all, and is getting fat and strong again. 
she is not at all pleased with her brother. They are always together, my wife and the despised Leitzen. Victoria knows my feelings but chooses to ignore them. But I do think, Mum, that the revenues from the Duchy of Cornwall should pass straight to me for nursery expenses rather than through Mr Anson. It would cause friction, my dear Letson. I am of the opinion that we should let things be. As you wish, Mum. Go now to the nursery. The prince awaits. Yes, Mum. My dear Albert, you work too hard. There is much to do. You were with the Baroness? Please, I cannot continue this argument. She has been my friend and ally for too many years. And regards herself too highly. The woman is a crazy, stupid intriguer, obsessed with a lust for power. Stop, please. I am not well enough for this. And I'm too worried about the children. Vicky is not thriving anymore and the baby... Victoria, they are too much under her influence. I cannot listen to any more. I will sacrifice my own comfort, my life's happiness for my beloved Victoria. Indeed, I would die fighting for her existence as sovereign and for the welfare of my children. I will not yield them as prey to Leitzen. It was not without great difficulty... Stockmar told Lord Granville that the prince succeeded in getting rid of her. Baroness Leitzen, that is. Oh, what a relief. There is peace in the household at last. And even Sir Robert Peel finds himself in favour now that he has settled in as Prime Minister. My dear friend Leitzen, governess through all my childhood has gone. The situation was becoming impossible with my beloved Albert believing quite fervently that she wielded too much power and influence on my life. I owe her much, and to speak only of her mistakes would not be right. It was not personal ambition at all, but the idea that no one but herself was to take care of the Queen. At last there is tranquility in our household, and 1842 seems to be a year of respite, no babies. Albert and I have resumed our former happiness. But when we were out in the parks, enjoying the pleasure of our own company, Albert thought he heard a gunshot. Did you hear that? I heard nothing. Nor has anyone else, I think. A firework, perhaps. Oh, Albert, this is such a pleasure. A ride through the parks with my most beloved husband. It is because we are at last so happy to be with one another. No babies to fuss about. No interference. And you look so well, my dearest. It turned out that Albert was right. A man had fired at us and then walked away. A boy witnessed the whole scene and reported it to the police and then to Sir Robert Peel. So today, heavily guarded, we take our usual ride in the park in the hope he will make himself apparent and be caught. My brave, most precious wife. Are you frightened? When I am with you, I feel no fear. So many people, waving and smiling. They love you. Old and young alike. See how they bow to you. To us, the <laughs> Queen and the Regent. London in spring is so clean, refreshed. Cherry blossom everywhere. 
Constitution Hill already. The bigger crowd. The equities have been alerted to keep close. It was here I heard the gunshot yesterday. It is unbelievable. If a man was seen, why was he not arrested? It was also unexpected. He was able to walk away. Are you sure you're not afraid? Not if we are together. It's our duty. He must be caught. There. They have him. They're taking him away. I saw nothing. He was too far away to cause real harm. He's being led away. We are quite safe. How many other assassins would be prepared to take a pot shot at my beloved? Those hot-headed chartists, maybe, protesting against the Poor Law Amendment Act. And furthermore, there is once again change afoot in Parliament. I have written to Lord Melbourne to say how much we miss him. His resignation was a hammer blow, and I confess I couldn't countenance the notion of another Prime Minister. However, after an awkward introduction, I find Sir Robert Peel to be both amenable and honest. I am glad of the opportunity to discuss the state of the country with Your Majesty and Your Royal Highness. Prince Albert and I were much concerned by the Home Secretary's letter. Indeed, Sir Robert, I feel that we have been out of touch with the situation. The turbulence in South Wales is quite alarming. Who are these Rebecca rioters destroying the toll gates and causing such havoc? I gather they are men dressed as women, oh. protesting against the Poor Law Amendment Act. Uh. They take their name from the biblical prophecy that Rebecca's seed should possess the gate of those that hate them. No, it is a lamentable affair. I have repeatedly urged the necessity of its being put an end to by you, Prime Minister... And the government. I think we would want to issue a special commission for the trial of offenders. Would you sanction that, my dearest? Most certainly. It should be implemented as soon as possible. We will soon be off on our tour of England. When we may have the opportunity to witness the unrest you are concerned about. I am glad to be alone with you, my darling. A house party is a very gay event. But there are too many dukes staying here for my liking. <laughs> Chatsworth is irresistible. Even in December. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have such a house as this? A family retreat. Especially now that we have little Alice. Then we must consider it. Other people escape their duties, why not us? It could be argued that we have already escaped. For months on end. Who would dare complain? Why, our visit to France was the first time I have crossed the Channel. I am conscious of letting people see us on our travels. It gives them... hope. In any case, we are expected to visit the great houses, and that can become tedious. Mm, but enjoyable. Oh, thank heavens for the railroad. At least we can travel delightfully, even from Slough to Windsor. And see for ourselves the pockets of unrest. Oh, we should turn back. It's almost time for luncheon. Oh, just look at this. Now, what would you call it? A glass house? A conservatory. Yeah, but, but it's enormous. What? Uh, yeah, nearly 70 feet high, would you say? And, and about uh, oh, three, four hundred feet long? <laughs> I have never seen so much glass. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's the kind of building I would like to design. It's by Joseph Paxton. There was much trepidation, but it has worked. What I would like is to build us a house. I would consider all our needs, find the perfect plot of land, and make it so welcoming that we would never want to leave it. 
We will have such a house. And then I can stop you from hunting. I have told you, my dearest, that I must turn out tomorrow. It is expected of me. And I will be careful. But I shall worry nevertheless. My dear Uncle Leopold, one can hardly credit the absurdity of people here, but Albert's riding and hunting so boldly and hard has made such a sensation that it has been written about all over the country, and they make much more of it than if he had done some great act. It rather disgusts one, but still it has done and does good, for it has put an end to all impertinent sneering for the future of Albert's riding. This journey has done great good, and my beloved Albert in particular has had the great success. For instance, at Birmingham, the good his visit has done has been immense, for Albert spoke to all these manufacturers in their own language, which they did not expect, and these poor people have only been accustomed to hear demagogues and chartists. We had barely set foot in London, when the news of Albert's dear father's death reached us. It has put us in a state of shock. Oh, oh my beloved. Why didn't you send for me the moment you heard? It is so hard to understand, sweet Victoria. You never knew your father. And yet I mourn him, as I mourn for our dearest papa. Oh, let me hold you. Oh, Albert, you should have been there. How could you bear? Oh, my place is always here. But, of course, I will have to go to Coburg to pay my respects to my father's grave. How will we manage without you? We have never been apart this long. I have to. And to caution my brother against following the same path. <laughs> my father was not a good man. But, oh, my dearest. He was your father, nonetheless, and I share your grief. I have written to Uncle Leopold to tell him how devastated we have been at the news. I said, to describe to you all that we have suffered, all that we do suffer, would be difficult. God has heavily afflicted us. We feel crushed, overwhelmed, bowed down by the loss of one who was so deservedly loved may I say adored, by his children and family. I loved him and looked on him as my own father. My darling stands so alone. I am now all to him. I can just about make it out. There, to the left of the white flagpole. That surely is Osborne House. No, no, it's much further to the right. Follow the line of my finger. Here, use my telescope. Hold it still, my dearest. Now, do you see it? That really is Osborne. Oh, I think you're right, Albert. It is the perfect position. I remember very clearly being overwhelmed by the view when I came here with Mama as a child. When I saw the place in April, it seemed right. It gives a sense of being abroad. Such privacy. Oh, how I long for that. Cubit will meet us there to discuss the alterations. He's the finest architect... I have such good feelings about our plans, and I am sure that we shall be happy there. Hmm. Mr. Cubitt, 
It makes perfect sense. You see, Your Royal Highness, the repairs, additions and alterations would cost far more than starting from scratch. Mm. What's more, a new house would be exactly to your liking, I would have thought. I do agree. And with minor repairs to the existing house, you could in fact use Osborne immediately and without any inconvenience. So, these are the preliminary sketches. I took the liberty... I like the squareness of it. And your proposed sighting. Yes, the prospect reminds me so much of the Bay of Naples. I think the Queen would enjoy an Italianate influence. What do you say, Mr. Cubitt? Perfectly possible, sir. Yes, twin campaniles, perhaps. And inside, freezes, alcoves, uh, tiles. I have so many ideas. And may I venture in keeping with the classical style that I tend to adopt? That's not to say we should not be innovative. Absolutely. My dearest, come and look at the plans. Plans? Mr. Cubitt is of the opinion that we should build a new house. And incur the wrath of Parliament? It would be cheaper. Let Mr. Cubitt explain. It does my heart good to see how my beloved Albert enjoys it all and is so full of admiration of the place and of all the plans and improvements he means to carry out. He is hardly to be kept at home for a moment. I relish the idea of a family home. And now that we have dear little Alfred, it must be big enough to accommodate us all. Take my hand, my dearest. We'll walk through our house, imagining where everything will be. Be careful where you place your feet. Oh, this is so exciting. Something that you and I can share that is new, never been lived in. So, here is the threshold and what will be a pavilion. Over there in the centre, a drawing room, Uh a billiard room to the left, a dining room to the right. And all interlinked. But arranged so it seems that one could be private in each part. This is so cosy. And such views of the sea, oh, Albert. And when it is stormy and wet, shutters. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Even more snug. But conceal the shutters, my beloved, that draw out of the wall and are faced with mirrors, thereby extending the proportions of the rooms even further. And reflecting light from the chandeliers, presumably. Exactly. Oh, it will be wonderful. And... Uh, yeah. On the second floor, the children will have their nurseries, and the schoolroom will be close by your sitting room here on the first floor. In that way, we can be a family. Yeah. But uh, escape from them, too, when we feel the need. <laughs> and Mama? Where is her suite? Some considerable way past the audience room, the council room, and other reception rooms. On the ground floor. Perfect. Quite Prince Albert is given to making fine speeches. He would have us embrace his idea of a great exhibition which would demonstrate the realization of the unity of mankind. Somerset House and Leicester Square are deemed too small to house such a venture. The prince says it must embrace foreign productions. It will be the first international exhibition ever held. But there is great sadness. Sir Robert Peel died after a riding accident and Albert is much preoccupied by this news. The 9th of July, 1850. My poor dear Albert, 
who had been so fresh and well when we came back from Ireland, looks so pale and fagged again. He has felt and feels Sir Robert's death dreadfully. Will the day come, my dearest, when I am not weighed down with the loss of such good friends? First George Anson, 37 is no age. And Sir Robert... So much grief is difficult to bear. I have no enthusiasm for the Great Exhibition. It's as if my dream has turned into a nightmare. I hadn't envisaged such opposition for one thing, and I am presented with difficulties every single day. You mustn't give in, my dearest Albert. And you won't. It's not part of your nature. In any case, there has been a change of heart. The powers that be are quite enthusiastic again. Sir Robert's demise has pricked the conscience of Parliament. He was always so eager for the exhibition to go ahead and to succeed. Oh, then I cannot let him down. But there are still insurmountable problems. You'll think of something. I have the utmost faith in your ingenuity and genius. Well, Paxton, what do you make of it all? I'm very honoured to be invited to this trial session of the House of Commons. It's not often a lowly voter receives such an invitation from his Member of Parliament. You are here, my dear fellow, as a revered architect and designer. So, do you like it? Do you think it a worthy building? Like everyone else, I wanted the Commons to be as it was before the fire. Nevertheless, it is a fine achievement. But not to your taste, eh? Perhaps the great exhibition building would be more of a challenge to you. That's already in hand, surely. I thought that the prince had consulted Cubitt. Uh, but you've no idea the pandemonium and fuss. Hyde Park has been decided on as the venue. <laughs> Sacred ground. And no one shall touch a blade of grass, it would seem, or pull down a single tree. It's impossible. The committee is dead its hair out. And when it's all over, the whole building has to be pulled down. It's a white elephant, Paxton, a waste of taxpayers' money. Hmm. Is there someone I could speak to? I might just... Let's say I could have the answer to the problem. Mr. Paxton delivered a set of drawings to the committee. The exhibition building, over a third of a mile in length, was to be constructed principally in glass. Any trees within the structure would be enclosed, not cut down. Imagine the derision. They would have the whole thing torn up had I not recalled Chatsworth House and that wonderful conservatory. Together, Mr. Paxton and I tried to convince the committee of the viability of the plans. They would not be moved. However, Mr. Paxton offered his drawings to the Illustrated London News, and there was instant admiration. Punch ridiculed the design and called it the Crystal Palace. The name seems to have stuck. Building work is at last in progress, but it is not without controversy. The Queen's uncle, the King of Hanover, warned Frederick William IV that it would be unsafe to attend this rubbishy exhibition because the excommunicated of all lands would be in London. Ministers will not allow the Queen and the originator of this folly, Prince Albert, to be in London while the exhibition is on. It will collapse in a gale and it is regarded as the second Tower of Babel. Will the Crystal Palace be made of real crystal? No, little pussy. Glass. But it will sparkle nonetheless. And break. Boys will throw stones and it will all come crashing down. Oh, nonsense, Bertie. My soldiers and the police force will be on permanent guard. Woe betide any foolish boy who breaks a single pane. 
This is Papa's greatest achievement. <laughs> and you will let us see it when it's open, won't you? You did promise. You and Bertie will be there at our sides when Mama opens the exhibition. <laughs> I want to do and see whatever I choose. You will do what you are told. But can we see everything? You won't rush us away. That will depend on your behaviour. Yes, Mama. From this moment. <laughs> now go to the nursery. Papa needs to rest. <laughs> they get so overexcited. Uh, Vicky will keep Bertie in order. She's so sensible. Rest a little, my dearest. You look exhausted. With worry and anticipation. All is well. It looks magnificent. And it will withstand even the strongest winds. I am concerned more than anything for your safety, my dearest. There is a rising public concern after the attempt. I shall not sit at home because two wretched creatures took it upon themselves to make an end of me. The Queen must be there, at her husband's side. Most proud to be at her beloved husband's side. The 30th of April... 1851. Everyone is occupied with the great day and afternoon. All day some question or other, or some difficulty, all of which my beloved one takes with the greatest quiet and good temper. The noise and bustle even greater than yesterday, as so many preparations are being made for the seating of the spectators, and there is certainly still much to be done. I do feel proud at the thought of what my beloved Albert's great mind has conceived. My hand is quite stiff with so much waving. Uh, these people have been waiting all night. Some were here yesterday to get a good view. Oh, isn't it exciting? Oh, just look, Bertie. The sun has come out and the Crystal Palace is glistening. We are arriving in Queen's weather. Did you know that, children? No, whenever Mama arrives, absolutely anywhere... The rain always stops and the sun shines. The Queen's weather. Oh, I do like that, Mama. And I wouldn't want my new lace dress to get wet. You both look quite splendid. Full Highland dress suits you very well, Bertie. In fact, you are both entirely grown up. And I know that you will behave impeccably, Bertie. Yes, Mama. Now make sure you, you each have a catalogue. You will need to refer to it. The earth is the Lord's and all that therein is. That is the exhibition motto. And very fitting. The 1st of May, 1851. This day is one of the greatest and most glorious days of our lives, with which, to my pride and joy, the name of my dearly beloved Albert is forever associated. I never saw Hyde Park look as it did, being filled with crowds as far as the eye could reach. Outside, all the princes were standing. In a few seconds we proceeded, Albert leading me, having Vicky at his hand and Bertie holding mine. The sight as we came to the centre, where the steps and chair on which I did not sit was placed, facing the beautiful crystal fountain, was magic and impressive. The tremendous cheering, the joy expressed in every face, the vastness of the building with all its decorations and exhibits, the sound of the organ with 200 instruments and 600 voices which seemed nothing, and my beloved husband, the creator of this great peace festival, uniting the industry and art of all nations of the earth. All this 
was indeed moving and a day to live forever. God bless my dearest Albert and my dear country which has shown itself great today. What a magical day. Aren't you both proud of your dearest Papa? So, so proud. 293,655 panes of glass. <laughs> Heavens, Bertie, if only you would remember your lessons half as well. <laughs> oh, it all went so smoothly. No disorder, no fuss of any sort. It's such a relief. Yes, I, I think I might sleep well tonight. I shan't sleep. It's all been so exciting. And the crowds will keep us awake, won't they? Oh, they show no signs of going home. It reminds me so much of the coronation. Oh, except for the little Chinaman. He was very colourful. <laughs> yeah, he put on his best ceremonial robes, and it was thought he must be an emissary from the Celestial Kingdom. Which was why he was placed between the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Duke of Wellington, I suppose. <laughs> it transpired that he is actually the proprietor of a junk moored on the Thames. <laughs> we were all in fancy dress. I'm not really a Highlander, am I, Papa? You are entitled to wear whatever I wish. Now, Bertie, it is long past your bedtime. Papa and I have to dress for the grand ball. Oh, how I wish I could see your gown, Mama. No. You may kiss us good night. <laughs> Today has been altogether too much for you both. Good night, my little pussy. Your Papa is very proud of his son and daughter. Good night, dearest Mama. Dearest Papa. <laughs> I am so glad that you are pleased, my beloved wife. Pleased? I am so delighted and curious that I intend to visit the Crystal Palace several times a week until it closes. The Great Exhibition has taken its toll, I fear. I have suffered many bouts of stomach pains and cramps, which must in part be due to the unrelenting strain placed upon me. As I look in the mirror, I see a balding, rather paunchy old man and I am not yet 33 years old. So be it. There is much to do. The Crystal Palace has been sold for £70,000 and moved to a place called Sydenham in Kent. Together with the £200,000 surplus from the exhibition, there is a substantial amount for the creation of a collection of museums of science and nature and art galleries on a site in South Kensington. That would be my greatest dream, to provide an environment that would enlighten and entertain the people of this great nation. But I am unwell. Thank heavens for Balmoral, which we have acquired as our Highland retreat. I have redesigned the castle and building starts quite soon. The clear air and perfect peace will help restore my wretched bad health. It is tradition that we have to set claim to the site of our new home. Each of us must choose a stone and build a cairn. I want to reach the top of Cray Cairns before anyone else. Oh, the stags must wonder at such a colourful party invading their peace. Oh, Albert, I am so happy to be here. The purchase of Balmoral has lifted my spirits to such heights. I would choose to stay here forever. Oh, some of the ladies in waiting find it too bracing. Altogether too cold. Oh, what nonsense. Cold, fresh air cures all ills. 
I look at the roses in your cheeks. You are so much better. Do Scottish people always have this ceremony, Papa? I believe so. We should be drinking whiskey to celebrate, according to the custom. And we should dance, too. No, not before you place the very last stone, my beloved. It's not so easy. There. It is done. Three cheers for the cairn. Hip, hip. Hurrah! Hip, hip. Hurrah! Hip, hip. Hurrah! Was there ever such happiness? Well, Lord Derby's shaky ministry of precisely 305 days crumbled, and the Earl of Aberdeen has taken over. No one quite knew whether the Tories were Whigs or vice versa, with Palmerston and others crossing the floor of the House. However, the Whigs are now called Liberals, so that clarifies everything, doesn't it? The Queen has other matters on her mind. On April the 7th, 1853, our fourth son and eighth child was born with the assistance of blessed chloroform. The effect is soothing, quieting, and delightful beyond measure. He is to be named after Uncle Leopold. At first, we thought the baby a jolly little fat fellow, but we have just learnt that he suffers from the incurable disease, haemophilia. He is therefore extremely fragile and not likely to survive many years. This has added to my disquiet. I find that too many pregnancies too soon has made life wretched for years. I cannot but resent the fact that it is women who have to bear the burden of childbearing. It would appear that the child is hungry. It is more than that. Why do you insist on the Scottish wet nurse? Because she is a good, healthy woman. But it is clear that her milk disagrees with the baby. Milk is milk. He will soon adjust to her. This constant carping is making me ill, dearest Albert. That is not my intention, my beloved. I am merely expressing my concern for the child. If you had to suffer as I do, you would not be so accusing. I am not... I find this room oppressive. Leopold is in good hands. I need fresher air. I need to be in Balmoral. Somewhere as far away as possible from so many demanding children. Who you see once in three months, perhaps. The problems in our domestic life have been overtaken by the threat of war in Turkey. If the overland route to India is impeded and our supremacy of the seas compromised, the empire will be threatened and war will be inevitable. Please do sit, my dear Lord Aberdeen. There's much to discuss. Thank you, Your Majesty. We feel that we are in safe hands after the defeat of Lord Derby's government. You should be congratulated on your most strong cabinet. I am pleased that you approve, Your Royal Highness. Our main concern must be the Russian-Turkish conflict and how far we involve ourselves. I know that Your Majesty advocates caution. I have read Lord Stratford's last private letters. They exhibit clearly on his part a desire for war. 
It seems that his own feelings will frustrate all our efforts for peace. Indeed, ma'am. As much as we would wish to keep out of the war, it seems inevitable that we will become a part of it. Last Monday night, all in a fright, Al out of bed did tumble. The German lad was raving mad. How he did groan and grumble. He cried to Vic, I've cut my stick. To St. Petersburg, go right slap. When Vic, tis said, jumped out of bed and whopped him with her nightcap. You jolly Turk, now go to work and show the bear your power. It is rumoured over Britain's isle that A is in the tower. The 13th of January, 1854. For the last three weeks, there have been vile attacks in the newspapers against my dear husband, who is accused of intriguing in the interests of Russia. They're quite mad. And although such nonsense gains no credit among sensible people who respect and love Albert, yet they have provided an occasion for many dreadful remarks. The 21st of February, 1854. Dear Uncle Leopold, War is, I fear, inevitable. You will have seen that the Emperor Nicholas has not given a favourable answer to our brother Napoleon, and the last proposals or attempts made by Buol, the Austrian Premier, it is hoped will not be accepted by Russia, for France and England could not accept them. But if Austria and Prussia go with us, as we hope they will, the war will only be a local one. Our beautiful guards sail tomorrow. Albert inspected them yesterday. I think you should come in now, my dearest. All those crowds, and it is not yet seven o'clock. Everyone is as anxious as you to wish the Fusiliers bon voyage. The last battalion. Pray God they come back safe. To think that this war has been brought about by one man and his servants. That we should have to sacrifice a single soldier for the satisfaction of... It is all too late. The Tsar is determined. He will fight to the bitter end. You must be strong as you always are, my beloved wife. The country is there with you. The 13th of October, 1854. Dear Uncle Leopold, we are, indeed the whole country is, entirely engrossed with one idea, one anxious thought, the Crimea. We have received all the most interesting and gratifying details of the splendid and decisive victory of the Alma on the 20th of September. Alas, it was a bloody one. Our loss was a heavy one. Many have fallen and many are wounded. But my noble troops behaved with a courage and desperation which was beautiful to behold. The Russians expected their position would hold out three weeks. Their loss was immense. Since that, the army has performed a wonderful march to Balaclava and the bombardment of Sebastopol has begun. As I wrote to Princess Augusta, I regret exceedingly not to be a man and to be able to fight in this war. <laughs> Your duty as queen, my little wife, is to be the rock against which the country leans. My heart bleeds for the many fallen. But I consider that there is no finer death for a man 
than on the battlefield. I could not bear to see one of our sons. It is terrible to think of all the wretched wives and mothers who are awaiting the fate of those nearest and dearest. Albert, my beloved, to think of all those families. If there is any consolation, it is the victory at Inkerman. And the pride we should feel to have such troops. The Queen returns the drawings for the Victoria Cross. She has marked the one she approves with an X. She thinks, however, that it might be a trifle smaller. The motto would be better for valour than for the brave, as this would lead to the inference that only those who are deemed brave have got the Victoria Cross. Blessed are the merciful. That is wonderfully appropriate for such a selfless nurse. The cross of St. George. And look, the word Crimea. I think Miss Nightingale will cherish such a brooch. Let me read what I have said about it. The form and emblems of which commemorate your great and blessed work, and which I hope you will wear as a mark of the high approbation of your sovereign. It will be a very great satisfaction to me when you return at last to these shores to make the acquaintance of one who has set so bright an example to our sex. Oh, it is so wonderful to escape from the weight of the last years. It is as if I have taken a deep breath and find myself in the most perfect paradise. My beloved... It is so wonderfully good to have you restored to such peace of mind. Balmoral has that effect. Oh, Albert, you have been so patient, so understanding of my irrational behavior, my worries over the Crimea, and this ninth pregnancy which has ever burdens me. Our love is enduring. It withstands every challenge, my dear little wife. The old house has quite gone. How strange... The new tower rises as a proud symbol of our love. It is very fine. It is so exciting that this house, like Osborne, is your creation. You have built it for us, our dear family. And our friends. What I like best is that we can be ourselves with our friends. Or alone. When you hunt, I am content to wander, to gaze at these magnificent mountains. And... And what, my love? And remember a time when I was never alone, night or day. You have given me the most precious gift, freedom. At two o'clock in the morning, on the 14th of April, 1857, I gave birth. I had wished for a girl, and Beatrice is an unusually pretty baby, the flower of the flock. I have felt stronger and better this time than I have ever done before. It seems so strange that I should have another child just a few months before my beloved Vicky is joined in marriage to Prince Frederick William Fritz of Prussia. Dearest Albert, I'm so glad you are now at my side. Before the service, I thought I should faint from nervousness. <laughs> Our daughter looked supremely happy. When she walked down the staircase to meet me, I could not believe how beautiful she has become. How will we bear to be parted from her? 
She will always be with us. Vicky loves us too much to abandon us. This is difficult to keep my composure. Oh, but you will. I cannot recall any time when you were anything less than regal. It is so good to be here in Balmoral. Albert has continued to hunt and has killed a fair number of stags. I have enjoyed walking and sketching, two of my favourite pastimes. We took off on a short tour with Lord and Lady Churchill. There were two coaches. John Brown was on the box as usual. He is Albert's most trusted gilly. Albert and I decided to call ourselves Lord and Lady Churchill and party. It was great fun. Brown forgot this and called me Your Majesty as I was getting into the carriage. And Grant on the box once called Albert Your Royal Highness, which set us off laughing. But no one observed it. You look pensive. I was savouring our travels incognito. Uncle Leopold was much amused by my account. It was the most beautiful week. We will return as soon as we can. It does you so much good. John Brown takes the most wonderful care of me. It is quite a sorrow for me to leave him behind. But I am increasingly concerned about dear Albert's health. He is rheumatic, of course, but is so often struck down by stomach pains. The dearest man works unceasingly at my side, but he is exhausted and depressed. And I have to say that I am greatly worried by this. And now that we are home, there is the worst possible news. Mama, who had given us grave cause for concern, has died. I am beside myself with grief. The grieving queen needs the support of her family. And whilst Helena is a willing help to her parents, Bertie, the Prince of Wales, would sooner be anywhere else than at home. This really is excessive. I cannot tolerate so much show of grief. But Bertie, Mama really does feel a huge loss. So do we all. But it will mean months of doom and gloom. You won't be here, will you? You'll get away just as soon as you can. I certainly will, my dear Helena. Oh, I wish I was free to... No. I am sorry for Mama, and she will need our love and support. This has been the worst time of my life. Relieved only by the knowledge that dearest Mama loved me. I have found little books with the accounts of my babyhood, and they show such unbounded tenderness... I feel we must rest. Albert is increasingly tired, overwhelmed by his task as sole executor to Mama's estate. A spring holiday at our beloved Osborne will restore our health and perhaps our spirits. <sighs> I haven't the heart to play. 
Nor should I. It is not appropriate. It is nearly three months, my dearest. And we will mourn for three more at the very least. I am concerned about the children. They must observe this time of grief. And yet, I must take up my public duties. My dearest, I am not well. The Chelsea Flower Show is not an occasion that I would wish to... It is for this year only, my dear. You must understand. Oh, I do. Protocol does not allow... Oh, I can see you are pale. Quite wasted away. We must make sure that you rest. After tomorrow, there will be a respite. Thank God. I will leave you in peace, my beloved. I cannot have my husband in such distress. I'm ill, feverish, with pains in my limbs, and feel very miserable. And whilst the Queen continues to mourn, poor sick Albert fulfills his public duties. And it is to him that concerned friends report the antics of the Prince of Wales. My dear Bertie, you have become the talk and ridicule of the idle and profligate. I gather this actress, Nellie Clifton, frequents the lowest dance halls in London and already goes by the nickname the Princess of Wales. She will probably have a child of which you would be the reputed father. If you were to try to deny it, she can drag you into a court of law to force you to own it. And there, with you in the witness box, she will be able to give before a greedy multitude disgusting details of your profligacy for the sake of convincing the jewellery, yourself cross-examined by a railing, indecent attorney, and hooted and yelled at by a lawless mob. Oh, horrible prospect, which this person has in her power any day to realise and break your poor parents' hearts. I have not yet sent the letter to Bertie, but I shall give it to him presently so that he may study it at length. You must tell me what he has done. I cannot. It would destroy any love you have for the scoundrel. Dearest Albert, you must not distress yourself so. I won't ask any more. I can see the pain it is causing. We have tolerated Bertie's antics for long enough. No doubt this latest scandal involves yet another woman. Or is it fraud or some such... It is not fraud. We cannot waste another minute. He must marry Alexandra as soon as possible. I will go and see him. <laughs> there you are, ignoble creature. Oh, good shot! Come here, sir! At once! Papa, what are you doing here? And it's such inclement weather. I have come to see you, Bertie. Let us at least shelter from this torrent. We're all soaked to the skin. <coughs> you don't mean to join us, do you, Papa? I have more pressing business. An anger that will not let me sleep. That makes me feel so wretched. And am I the cause of this? You know full well that you are. Take this letter. It describes my disgust at your behaviour. I have managed thus far to keep the truth from your mother. I think I know what this is about. Well, there is some sort of conscience lurking there, then. And so there should be. This Nellie Clifton, this so-called actress, 
How many others, I wonder? None, sir, I promise. We've heard your promises before. Empty. Every one of them. Oh, Papa, I did not mean to cause you such distress. I allowed myself to be led astray. Allowed? When you have been brought up to obey the strictest moral code. Bertie! You are making me ill! You are destroying me! 7th of December, 1861. I went to my room and cried dreadfully and felt as if my heart must break. Oh, such agony has exceeded all my grief this year. Oh, God, help and protect him. I seem to live in a dreadful dream. My angel lay on the bed in the bedroom, and I sat by him, watching him, and the tears fell fast. Saw Sir James and Dr. Jenner talked over... What could have caused this? Great worry and far too hard work for long. That must be stopped. The 9th of December, 1861. He wanders frequently, and they say it is of no consequence, though very distressing, for it is unlike my own angel. He was so kind, calling me Gutes Weichen, excellent little wife and liking me holding his dear hand oh it is an anxious anxious time but God will help us through it the 13th of December 1861 found him very quiet and comfortably warm and so dear and kind he kissed me so affectionately and so completely like himself and I held his dear hands between mine. They gave him brandy every half hour. Oh, Mama, perhaps I should not be here. My presence upsets Papa. We must all stay. My darling, we're all here. Oh, goodness, Rauchen. Let me kiss him too. Alice, now you. We must not tire him. He is already asleep. The 14th of December, 1861. I left the room for a moment and sat down on the floor in utter despair. Attempts at consolation from others only made me worse. Alice told me to come in, and I took his dear left hand, which was already cold, though the breathing was quite gentle, and I knelt down by him. Alice was on the other side. Bertie, Helena, kneeling at the foot of the bed, Two, three long but perfectly gentle breaths were drawn, the hand clasping mine, and all, all was over. I stood up, kissed his dear heavenly forehead, 
and called out in a bitter and agonizing cry, Oh, my dear darling. The queen mourned. Oh, how she mourned. Shut herself away and mourned. From December 1861 to December 1862 and well into the spring of the following year. The 24th of April, 1863. My dear Mr. Disraeli, the Queen cannot resist from expressing personally to Mr. Disraeli her deep gratification at the tribute he paid to her adored, beloved and great husband in relation to the proposed Albert Memorial. The perusal of it made her shed many tears, but it was very soothing to her broken heart to see such true appreciation of that spotless and unequalled character. The 24th of February, 1865. My dear Uncle Leopold, we had snow and frost, and now complete thaw. And today, pouring rain, which has made sad old Windsor look gloomier than ever. But it is full of precious recollections, dear beyond measure. I continue to ride daily on my pony, and have now appointed that excellent Highland servant, John Brown, to attend me always and everywhere out of doors, whether riding or driving or on foot. And it is a real comfort, for he is so devoted to me, so simple, intelligent, so unlike an ordinary servant, and so cheerful and attentive. Oh, life goes on. Young people are happy. And I, at forty-five and a half, look at life as ended. Last Friday was our dear wedding day. We will always be as happy as this. I am quite dizzy with love. I endeavour to fill my duties, but oh, how arduous they are and lonely without my beloved by my side. But I am touched by the joy and emotion with which the people greet their poor, widowed queen. I long for quiet and peace and to be enabled to dwell on the blessed future. I kneel by that bed where he left us, decked with flowers, and pray earnestly to be enabled to be courageous, patient and calm and to be guided by my darling to do what he would wish. And then a calm seems to come over me. A certainty my anguish is seen and heard and not in vain. And I feel lifted above this miserable earth of sorrows. Oh, and now? I must and do look ever back with gratitude unbounded on that Blessed time. In Young Victoria by Juliet S., Imogen Stubbs played Victoria. 
We also heard Anna Massey, Selina Cadell, Christopher Casanova, Andrew Wincott, Thomas Arnold, George Allenby, Terence Edmund, John Rowe, Claire Corbett and Adrian Lucas. The producer was Cherry Cookson.